The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, impeller wedges up, laser-guided torpedoes away, and the honor of the Queen defended. Independence Day monsters, Balboan warriors, and Civil War time travelers. Plus part 14 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast, and happy American Independence Day and beyond. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have part two and the finale of our excellent interview with David Weber. David discusses the new special signed leather-bound edition of the second entry in the Honor Harrington series, The Honor of the Queen, that's just out. David really gets into the background of the novel with us and discusses many aspects of that novel as well as the writing and creation of it. So that's coming up. Now, this is where I warn you, as David too suggests for us to do, there are major spoilers in this interview. Our idea going into the interview was that someone who might want to get the signed leather-bound edition of the second Donner Harrington novel had probably already read the book. So, sailor, take warning. But there is some excellent, wonderful material in the interview, and if you are not concerned about spoilers, have a listen, please. David is a voluble man, as you may have guessed, he would be, and we really get an in-depth, great discussion of the honor of the Queen. Plus, we continue our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. The July hardcovers and new trade paperbacks are out. They have been out since Tuesday, as a matter of fact, since in its odd way, American Publishing has most new hardcovers hit the bookstores on the first Tuesday of a given month of publication. So hail Tuesday, July 1st, and happy July 4th, by the way. Out in July is Monster Hunter Nemesis by Larry Correa. This is the fifth book in the Monster Hunter series, and this one is pretty cool. It's centered on Agent Franks from the other Monster Hunter books, and he proves to be just as taciturn and Terminator-like as before, but we find out more about what makes him that way. We get inside of his point of view and watch him take on some pretty frightening opponents. We have an excellent interview with Larry Correa talking about Monster Hunter Nemesis coming up on a future podcast, probably next week, I think. Also out in July is The Rods and the Axe by Tom Kratman. This is the latest in Tom's Carrera series, and in this one, the war in Balboa gets hot as Carrera's plan to draw in the enemies of the Republic began to pay off in a big way. It's lots of action, lots of finely wrought moments, and if you like military science fiction, this one's for you. Finally, the latest entry in Steve White's Jason Thanu time travel series debuts this month, Ghosts of Time. And this is a special one. It's set during the latter days of the Civil War. Jason and his associates have to navigate war-torn Richmond, and they meet up with Mosby's Raiders as well. As always with Steve White, the research is impeccable, and the imaginative settings and conflicts are just cool as a result. 
Monster Hunter Nemesis, The Rods and the Axe, and Ghosts of Time are now available at booksellers everywhere. Here is part two and the finale of a two-part interview with David Weber. David discusses the leather-bound signed edition of the second Honor Harrington novel, The Honor of the Queen. The interview is in-depth, and there are major spoilers herein if you haven't read the book, so be ye warned. Now for the rest of you, here you go. Part two of our interview with David Weber discussing The Honor of the Queen. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the technological and um, tactical uh, aspects of, of space warfare? Because there, I think that people are just, in the same way that we get fascinated by, uh, you know, the Horatio Hornblower or the Aubrey and Maturin books, um, just the, the fact that weapons only have this distance and not the other that they can shoot. You've come up with something like that as well. Could you tell us a little bit about impellers and uh, how these ships fight each other? Okay, well, there are basically two types of, of uh, drives for honorable ships. There are, actually, there's a third. There are old-fashioned reaction drives, uh, thrusters, that are used for maneuvering in close proximity to other ships or space stations or something like that. Uh, the primary means of sublight production, of sublight, excuse me, propulsion, is something called the impeller wedge. And in essence, the impeller wedge, the, the impeller drive, creates two uh, inclined planes of, uh, of massive uh, gravitational uh, differential that kind of contain the ship, generating them in uh, a pocket of um, normal space between these two wedges. And the wedges, theoretically, uh, could propagate themselves at the speed of light. Uh, unfortunately, they would turn the crews into anchovy paste the, the instant that they started doing that. Uh, I mean, they could, in theory, attain that velocity instantaneously. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, so you have something called uh, the inertial compensator. And the impeller, which dumps, for want of a better term, the, the inertia that would otherwise destroy the crew into this inertial compensator, but it can only handle a certain power level before it burns out and all of a sudden you get turned into anchovy paste anyway. Um, so the efficiency of your compensator has a lot to do with the maximum acceleration that you can attain and survive. Now, the maximum velocity that you can sustain uh, is a factor of your particle screening and your ability to survive the in, in, in the interstellar or the stellar medium in your vicinity. Um, and that limits you to a velocity of about 80% of light speed. So a smaller ship normally can accelerate faster than a larger ship. But there is no difference between their maximum sustained speeds. So having a higher rate of acceleration can be hugely important tactically, um, but only if you are operating in an envelope where it will allow you to get out of range or stay out of range or enter range before the other guy can attain his maximum velocity, because once he does, you can't close with him or run away from him anymore. 
The other aspect of the impeller wedges, um, and a huge one indeed for combat, is that the gravity differential from the, for want of a better term, outer face to the inner face of the wedge is so great that it bends light to the point that you really can't see through it very well. Uh, in fact, you can't see through it at all unless you know what the strength of the impeller wedge is, in which case your computers can kind of compensate to, to wrench the data that gets through the back into something comprehensible. But this means that no missile, no physical projectile can penetrate a wedge, and that for that matter, energy weapons can't penetrate the wedge. So if you are getting your clock cleaned by an adversary with energy weapons and you can roll ship so that the roof or the floor of your wedge is interposed between you and their energy weapons, they can't shoot you anymore. Um, which is why most of the ships in the Honorverse are designed for broadside combat. You fire out of the open space between the roof and the floor of your wedge. And, you, you're, you're, and your fire has to find that chink in the other guy's defenses before you can hurt him, too. And just to make your life complete, you have something called sidewalls, which are much, much weaker versions of the impeller wedge that will stop incoming solid projectiles and will bend or deflect uh, energy weapons. Now, the throat of the wedge, the forward aspect of the wedge, the, the portion which is pointed in the direction you are accelerating, whether you're moving in that direction or not, <laughs> the direction in which you are accelerating, um, is quite deep and not protected by sidewalls or the wedge. So the most devastating attack is a raking attack down the throat of your opponent's uh, wedge. The next most devastating is what they call an up-the-kilt shot because the after aspect of the wedge is much narrower but is still unprotected except by you know point defense systems that will try to kill the missiles incoming and, and that kind of thing. Um, Hypertravel uses the same basic technology as the impeller wedge. You can use an impeller wedge in hyper, but if you run into one of the gravity waves, which can be dozens of light years across, it will promptly rip your ship apart. Uh, so for that, you generate something called the Warshawski sail, which is generated, like I say, using much the same technology as the impeller wedge that lets you ride one of the, one of the uh, grav waves. Um, and acceleration rates in a grav wave are stupamongous uh, because you use the entire grav wave as your, um, as your inertial compensator sump, and you can dump five, 6,000 gravities worth of acceleration into it. But your maximum velocity is lower because of greater particulate mass uh, in, in hyperspace. Uh, traditionally, um, leading up to honors time, the um, decisive combat for battle fleets has been energy range combat. When you can get in close, you don't have to worry about magazines, you don't have to worry about trying to get missiles through uh, uh, advanced point defense and counter-missile systems. 
um, and into a range at which they could maybe possibly hurt the other guy, uh, etc. And there is actually a, a tactical revolution underway uh, because of the invention of something called the laser head, which is a standoff warhead weapon that can attack from 30,000 kilometers out. It doesn't have to get as close. Um, and because Manticore has been funding uh, some very, very, very black research programs, uh, which lead to uh, an entire new generation of missile weapons that totally, over the course of the next 15 years or so, transform uh, the, the tactical matrix of combat. But none of that is really evident at the time of Honor of the Queen, which means that a battle cruiser like... Um, uh, Saladin, which becomes uh, Thunder of God when it enters Mossad uh, service. That's the Haven uh, battle cruiser, Havenite. The Havenite battle cruiser that they provide. Yes, um, it's probably the equivalent of five to eight heavy cruisers, like Honor's uh, Fearless. Um, I've been asked whether or not. Uh, Honor could have beaten uh, Thunder of God under its original captain and with its original crew. And my response to that has been, well, the Honorverse would have been a very short series uh, <laughs> if Captain Yu had remained in command of Thunder of God. <laughs> okay. but Those Masadans are their own worst enemies. Oh, absolutely. Um, while Honor is away, uh, the Masadans attack, and they don't attack using Thunder of God or the uh, uh, destroyer um, Breslau, I think its name is, uh, which is the other Havenite ship uh, supporting her. Um, they attack with their conventional ships, and they do it in order to draw the Grayson Navy into pursuing them into an ambush in which Thunder of God and Breslau will destroy the Grayson Navy. Now, at this time, the ships are operating under Havenite control. Technically, all the Havenites have volunteered to become citizens of Masada. <laughs> and so Technically, it's not the peeps out here trying to kill off these allies, potential allies of the Manticorans. Um, actually, everybody knows better. However, the commander of Thunder of God, a fellow by the name of Alfredo Yu, has no interest in becoming a mass murderer and bombarding Grayson if it won't surrender, which, by the way, would also be a violation of the um, Epsilani Edict, uh, which would cause the... Um, theoretically at least, would cause the Solarian League, which is the 800-kilo gorilla in the room, uh, to come out to uh, to uh, Haven and sort of dismantle it one bolt at a time because the use of weapons of mass destruction against the civilian population is outlawed. Um, but you is, uh, you's not going to do that anyway because he's he's one of your good bad guys, right? Well, that's why I say you is not real enamored of doing that, and and not just because of the Epsilon edict. He thinks it would be a crime against humanity. It would be mass murder. But while Honor is away, 
uh, Curvoisier has indeed made great progress. Uh, you, you get to meet the, uh, the high admiral of the, uh, of the Grayson Navy. And I've had a lot of people tell me that for the first half of the book, they hated the Graysons. And from the midpoint of the book on, at the end of the book, they find themselves cheering for the Graysons and find out that the Graysons have become some of their favorite people. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt that the really pivotal scene for that is the dinner that um, uh, Raul, uh, Bernard Yanikov, who is the, the uh, high admiral, invites Curvoisier to because he apologizes to Curvoisier and he says, I know we've done wrong by Admiral, by, by Captain Harrington and your female personnel. And the problem is we don't know how to do it right. And we're, I, I promise you that we're trying to, but I, you need to understand where we're coming from. And he tells Curvoisier the history of Grayson and what they've been through to get to where they are. Well, he and Curvoisier become very good friends in a very short period of time. And when the Masadans attack, Curvoisier volunteers to take this one destroyer that Honor has left behind out to support them, even though Manticore is not at war with, uh, with Masada. Yanikov accepts the invitation, and they are both killed in the ambush carried out by uh, Alfredo Yu and Thomas Theismann, who is the captain of the Breslau, they don't know there's a Havenite ship out there Very, waiting for them, basically, correct? No, they don't know. They sail into, they sail into the missile ambush, and uh, the, um, the uh, Jason Alvarez, who is the skipper of the Manticoran destroyer, I think Madrigal is the destroyer, um, his ship takes serious but not fatal damage in extending its missile protection over the rest of the Grayson Navy, whose defenses are all oriented towards weapons threats they might expect from Masada, not from a frontline Navy. It would be kind of like um, uh, a ship with uh, a, uh, a Navy with World War II era ships finding itself up against a modern battle group. Okay, I mean, mm-hmm. that's the disparity between the weapons of the Masadans and the Graysons on one side, and the Havenites and the Manticorans on the other side. Well, Raoul Curvoisier orders uh, Alvarez to cover the Graysons as well as just his own ship. And the Graysons still take, you know, heavy, heavy losses, including Yanikov's entire flagship. And Curvoisier is killed when a missile gets through Madrigal's defenses and damages the destroyer. Alvarez, however, tells the senior surviving Grayson officer that Curvoisier lived long enough to tell him to cover the Grayson's retreat because Alvarez has, uh, Alvarez's ship has taken uh, impeller damage and can't stay away from the Grayson's, from the, from the Masadans anyway. Now, these are the old-style Masadan ships because uh, the Havenite ships are they are at rest relative to the asteroid belt, so they can't generate an interception vector to stay with the, uh, the Mantis and the Graysonites who are, who are running from the ambush. 
and the cap, the, the the senior Grayson officer says, "No, you know, we're not going to leave you here to fight them by yourself." And Alvarez says, "All of you together won't stop what's going to happen to my ship because you're too outnumbered. So if we got to die anyway, let it mean something." And so the Graysons even though they don't want to, they keep falling back towards Grayson in hopes that the surviving units of the Navy will be able to do something to protect the planet if it's attacked. And Alvarez turns alone and faces the entire Mossad Navy, and his ship is destroyed, but not before it really kicks butt. (laughs) At any rate, Honor comes back to discover that Masada is in control of the outer system. Um, and that Courvoisier is dead, and that she wasn't there when he needed her, that she ran out on him, even though neither one of them realized that that was what was happening. And it is absolutely devastating to her. Also, though, while she's gone, she has found out that the problems that she was having with the uh, with some of the Graysons pale besides some of the problems that some of her junior officers were having with Graysons because they happen to be female. And that has sort of clicked on the you don't mess with my people button. So she's already ready to come back to Grayson and sort these people out, if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much what happens, except she doesn't really need to sort the Graysons out. They're already trying to sort themselves out. And when she announces that she is going to remain to fight what they now know are heavy modern ships on the other side, even though Grayson does not yet have uh, an alliance with Manticore, some really serious reevaluation begins on on the Grayson side which is helped along by the fact that she attends a dinner with the protector, the planetary emperor and his family, in which she and Nimitz, her tree cat, prevent his and his entire family's assassination. (laughs) And that this is all captured on the palace security cameras and winds up being broadcast over the entire system data net. So everybody sees her and Nimitz like single-handedly taking on a dozen assassins. Um, and they see her go down, almost killed, uh, just as the rest of planetary security gets there. In fact, the only reason she's not killed is because the current protector, Benjamin, gets to one of his bodyguard's sidearms and kills the guy who's about to kill her. So many of the questions as to whether or not a woman can be an effective military officer are answered on that little video clip. And she winds up commanding and coordinating uh, the defense of Yeltsin Star against the combined Assad and Havenite threat. And she's hugely outnumbered at, as as we go into the climax. She's also um, she's hurt. She she doesn't recover from this uh, this encounter that she had at the at, at Benjamin's um, dinner table easily. She's really hurt, but she now, gets up again and fights anyway. She 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 loses the vision in one eye and all of the facial muscles on the left side of her face are basically killed. Um, and uh, she looks 
the way I describe it in the book, the way she thinks of it herself, she looks like an old, an old-fashioned stroke victim from before they had modern medicine. And her speech is affected because the the muscles that control her lips and her tongue on that side are also damaged. Um, and she is one of the minority of human beings who can't use the regeneration therapies, which means she's going to be looking at electronic cybernetic replacements for the the uh, organic originals, but that can't be done until she goes home. So all the way through this final battle and everything else, she's she's the the good thing about it is that the nerve mortality that has resulted in all this means she also can't feel it. Okay, that's the one good thing about it. But especially for men who believe that women are supposed to be protected when they see her turn up uh, at a conference with the entire side of her face dead and this big dressing over her destroyed eye. This is a problem for some of them on so many levels. You know, this should never have happened. This proves why women aren't allowed in combat. My God, she must be tough as nails to seal me up and operating. Maybe we've been wrong. All of this going on at once in the minds of these people who believe in the doctrine of the test, which is God's way of telling us we might have been wrong. Um, and so Grayson responds quite differently to the example of Honor Harrington from the way that many another uh, society might have. In the end, when you discovers that Alfredo you discovers that the uh, Masadans tend to use his ship to carry out a nuclear bombardment of Grayson if Grayson won't surrender, and that they're more likely to do this because the attempt to assassinate the protector was part of a fifth column plot by the Masadans. They had recruited his own cousin. Uh, to uh, assist in his murder, and then the title would have naturally devolved upon him, and he would have negotiated an accommodation with Masada and chased the Mantis the hell out of yeah. out of. Uh, he's a he's a Masadan uh, double agent, or or at least is aligned. The cousin of the of Benjamin is aligned with Masada secretly. Yeah, he's he is he is secretly a member of the faithful, yeah. and he has been recruited by, or rather, actually, his father started this organization, the the, the previous protector's brother, um, because he believed that Grayson was becoming godless and apostate, etc. Um, so when the assassination plot, the Maccabeus plot, because his code name is Maccabeus, when the Maccabeus plot fails. Um, Masada decides, okay, it's time to go with the nuclear bombardment option if they won't surrender. Um, and so the Masadans wind up operating uh, Thunder of God in the final confrontation where Honor goes up against her in her, out in her uh, heavy cruiser, um, which is the only reason that Honor is able to survive as long as she survives. Um, Meanwhile, however, after her return, uh, Honor has uh, has uh, captured the Breslau in the Battle of Blackbird, when she basically takes out what's left of the of the uh, Mossad Navy. And Thomas Theisman, who is the captain of the Breslau, tells her 
that some of Madrigal's crew survived and were taken prisoner, and that they're down on Blackbird, which is a moon of one of the Jovian supergiants in the in the Grayson system. And so Honor launches a, an attack with her Marines to take the base and rescue the prisoners, and finds out when she gets there that of all of the female personnel uh, on board, only two have survived, both brutally mistreated and gang-raped, um, and that the captain... Uh, Jason Alvarez, who survived the destruction of the ship, uh, was shot down in cold blood for attempting to get between the, the Mossads and um, uh, the last two surviving female members of his crew. Um, and this is the point at which Honor shoots somebody without a trial. <laughs> she basically turns around and walks straight up to the commander of the base, pulls out her sidearm, puts the muzzle against his forehead, and pulls the trigger. This is a mistake that the competent make. Well, this is a mistake that the competent who have the killer instinct from hell Uh make. Um, She saw absolutely no reason that there should be any trial for this guy. I mean, she just, she's in a kind of... um, absolutely cold, I know exactly what I'm doing, and I don't care mode, if you if you follow me. Because these are her people. She's responsible for them, and this happened to them because she wasn't here. And by God, the guy who did this is in my reach. And so she goes for him. And the only reason that she doesn't kill him is that one of her own junior officers has figured out what is happening, and he gets there just in time to shove her arm so that she misses and then she's tackled by the rest of her people who realize that she was about to shoot this person in cold blood. And and she winds up kneeling there. And and uh, Scotty Tremaine, the guy who stopped her from shooting, is holding her, her face between his hands. And he's saying, you can't do this. You can't do this. And she's like, you can't shoot him without a trial. And she's wondering, well, what does a trial have to do with anything? And at that point, the new commander of the Grayson Space Navy arrives, and he says, no, you can't, but I can. He'll have a trial, and it will be scrupulously honest, scrupulously honest, and then I promise you on the honor of the grace of Navy that all of the scum who did this to your people will pay the price. And that is really, in many ways, the point at which the relationship between honor and the grace and Navy all comes together. Mm-hmm. Point. Later, when she goes up against Thunder of God with a single heavy cruiser in defense of a planet that doesn't even belong to her queen, and as she says to Reginald Houseman early on, Houseman wants to run, and she she pummels him. <laughs> but uh, she explains to him that, you know, the honor of the Star Kingdom, the honor of the Queen is at stake here. Because if we abandon Grayson, even if it weren't morally the right thing to do, if we abandon Grayson, who will ever trust us again? And so she is prepared to get herself and her entire ship and its crew killed, defending this planet of people who thought that the whole nation of women in uniform was anathema before they met her. And she survives the first clash primarily because 
the uh, Mossadans are sort of learning as they go. They're basically running the ship with the instruction books open in their laps, <laughs> which is, is good. But she makes another mistake here, although it's arguable whether or not it was a mistake. I think it was. She realizes there's something wrong with the with Thunder of God, that it's not fighting smart, it's not fighting efficiently. But when she manages to damage the ship, and it breaks off. She doesn't pursue. She doesn't try to close in and kill the ship right there. And she realizes later that she gave them time to study the manuals before they come back. Because when they come back, they're fighting a lot smarter. And both ships are very badly damaged in this exchange. And again, Thunder of God breaks off temporarily because they've lost the sidewall. They need to go and make repairs. Etc. And so Honor winds up with the situation where she knows she cannot stop this ship, that in any kind of a conventional battle it's going to destroy Fearless and kill everybody on board. And so she basically decides on uh, a suicide run. She is going to close with, uh, with uh, Thunder of God, hiding behind her wedge, um, some of the missile damage is going to get through, and what she's going to do is she's going to hope that Fearless survives what the missiles can do long enough to get into energy range. And as, when she gets into energy range, or she takes this battle cruiser on in energy range combat, Fearless is doomed. But she's hoping that at that range, and with the advantage of her knowing when she plans to roll down to engage, that she can do enough damage to, to cripple thunder of God and cause them to break off the attack. It's the only hope she has left. And it doesn't work out that way only because one of her own subordinates has taken a damaged ship home to Manticore and gotten back in time with a uh, uh, Manticore and battlecruiser squadron. But the battlecruisers can't reach the battle before Fearless is going to be destroyed and Fearless's uh, comm section has been taken out. So even though they're sending her all these messages that say, break off, break off, she doesn't even know they're here yet because she's taken so much damage to her sensors and she can't hear them saying, break off. And so they realize that they've arrived in time to save her, but it's not going to do any good because they're going to see Fearless destroyed in front of their eyes anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the commander of the battlecruiser squadron uh, fires uh, a missile salvo at extreme range, such extreme range that it's not going to accomplish anything, and he knows it. But in hopes that Honor will see the missiles and realize somebody else is here and break off. And what happens is that the missiles actually get into attack range of Thunder of God, even though they do very little damage. And the captain of Thunder of God, the, the Mossad captain, panics and wrenches the bow of his ship away from the threat vector that these missiles have just revealed. And very unfortunately for him, <laughs> that turns the throat of his wedge directly yeah. towards Fearless. He gives Honor her shot. Her shot. and honor, It does. And, and Honor just blows Thunder of God into dust bunnies. Um, and there was great rejoicing. Um, but at the end of the day, she still has her squadron of 
one heavy cruiser, one light cruiser, and two destroyers. Both of the destroyers are are gone. The light cruiser and the heavy cruiser are both wrecks, and she's lost something like uh, half or more of her total personnel. And she's never, ever going to believe she couldn't have made it be better than that. Um, but the Graysons, <laughs> the protector of Grayson, uh, turn around and make her a stead holder. And in order to really understand what that means, you have to realize that the protector is the emperor of the planet, but there are like 86 stead holders, and each of them is in effect a reigning head of state in his own right. They're all male, uh, obviously, on Grayson. And they have huge local autonomy. They don't have to worry with any local legislature if they don't want to. I mean, they are they are autocrats, um, and this is a leftover from the survival imperatives of the planet when somebody had to make the hard calls and have the unquestioned authority to do it. Honor becomes the first female steadholder in the history of Grayson, um, and uh, Benjamin explains to her, we need you as an example. We need you to challenge us. We need you to be the protector's test for Grayson. Um, and that's basically where the book ends up, except for her being knighted and uh, hmm. getting the uh, the star of Grayson, which is basically the uh, Grayson Planetary Congressional Medal of Honor. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. what the heck. To understand the rest of the to understand the rest of the Honorverse books, this is a wonderful place to begin because it really sets up because Honor has a long history then with Grayson and being a stead holder there. Oh yes, oh yes, yes, um, and it's also the point at which she kind of started emerging onto the interstellar stage, if you will, in Basilisk Station, where she, you know pinches off the, the Havenite attempt to, to secure one of the termini of the Manticore and Wormhole Junction. But this is the point, at, and, the, and, the, and the, the peeps contribute to that when they try her in absentia as a war criminal. I mean, you know, that's like, man, who is this woman, you know, as far as everybody back home is concerned? And then you have this whole episode at Grayson, and she is like, you know, the woman, and she, and she would be the first to deny that she was the one who single-handedly saved Grayson because of all those people who fought and bled and died for her and because of the mistakes that she made. But that's still kind of the way that it's perceived in the public mind. And she becomes the, this huge national hero in Manticore and this sort of uh, uh, boogie woman uh, for Haven. Um, it's like somebody says at one point, you know, I figured that she had to be at least a thousand kilometers high and pick her teeth with white cruisers, given her reputation. Uh, that's one of the characters in the books. Now, there's also at least one, there's also at least one bunch of Manticorans in the book, uh, about two or three books further down the road, who find out that they're going to be serving on Captain Harrington's ship and say, oh my God, Harrington, we're all going to die. Because, you know. She likes to fight. The, they call her the salamander because she's always where the fire is hottest. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, and uh, she she uh, takes that seriously. But yeah, that's you have now allowed me to pretty much summarize. <laughs> well, well, we're we're assuming that uh, it, if you're going to buy the signed leather bound edition of uh, the Honor of the Queen, you probably have read it. 
Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of the of the book itself? In nineteen ninety two, I think. Nineteen ninety one, nineteen ninety two. Jim and I were talking and at that point I think let's see, Insurrection was out, Mutineer's Moon was out, uh Path of the Fury was out, I think. But anyway, so I had those books out and sold. And Jim had come to the conclusion that everything that I wrote was going to spawn sequels anyway. And so he suggested that we might, you know, plan a series instead of just letting it grow. And I pitched about uh, 10 concepts to him. Uh, Honor was one of them. Uh, what has become the multiverse books, the Hell's, Hell's Gates books, was one of them. And what has become the Safehold books that Tor is publishing was one of them. Little did I know that Jim Bain, for 20 years, had been looking for someone to do the ratio hornblower in space. And I'd already named her Honor Harrington. I didn't change the name because he wanted Horatio hornblower in space. I don't think he ever even read <laughs> the other proposal. He got to the point where I said, Honor Harrington is a six-foot-two-inch female Eurasian starship captain, a sort of Horatio hornblower in space. Mm-hmm. And he was like, bomb, and, and wrote a book, wrote a contract for like, three or four books right there on the spot, which was huge for me at that point. Now, I wrote the first two books in the space of about five months. Um, And so Jim had both of the manuscripts before he started production on Basilisk Station. That's why they came out so close together. They both came out in the same year. Both in the two... They came out like a month apart. I think one came out. That these, I think the months were like June and August. Mm-hmm. Okay, of, it was of something 1993. like were literally within like sixty days of each other in '93. Yeah, um, and of uh, the, um, I think that played a huge role in the initial readership of the series because it kind of hit the ground running. You'd had time to read Basilisk Station and boom, here's the second one on the shelf or here's both of them at the same time when you go to the bookstore, mm-hmm. which by the way was where everybody had to buy their books in those <laughs> days. Um, so that was how they came to come out so so close together. Um, and I think it was a brilliant piece of, of marketing strategy on Jim's part. I was single at that point. My first wife, had, my first marriage had had uh, had uh, come unglued um, between the uh, the sale of Insurrection and uh, the uh, pitching the honor books. Um, so I had a lot of time to write. Where were you living? Uh, I had moved from. I did. I was living downtown Greenville. Uh, I had a house that was built in 1918 that I had been renting and which I bought and renovated just in time to get married and move out of. Um, <laughs> I wrote Insurrection and Mutineer's Moon and the Armageddon Inheritance on an Osborne portable computer. Oh, man. Is that a CPM machine? or? <laughs> oh, CPM. The, the, the display, literally, I am not exaggerating here, uh, was the size of an index card. Three by five, um, and you had two 92k single side floppy drives, one for all of the operating hardware and one for the document that you were saving. And I was using WordStar, and you couldn't disable the backup function, which meant that you could get 41k 
on a floppy. So even when you punched it and flipped it so you could use the backside, you could get less than 90K per <laughs> floppy. And I was writing novels that had, well, like uh, Insurrection in its original Karma had 200,000 plus words in it. The original submission version had 180, and the final uh, edited version had 135. So I had a stack of floppies. And this was before the Internet. This was before you could email them in. I think this was when the the unions said that you had to re-keyboard everything anyway. I think it might have been uh, either the short victorious war or field of dishonor that I was able to send the hard copy plus a floppy. Um, <laughs> so advanced. Yeah. And and I think that uh, in um, – where was I? Uh, it was either um, Honor Among Enemies or In Enemy Hands was the first time that I emailed a manuscript to Bain. And it was like – Wow, <laughs> you know, it's gone. Better make sure it's still on the hard drive. I remember when I got the first hard drive, and it had it had four megs of memory. And I was like, I will never, never fill this puppy up. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. when people look at the computer technology in the universe, and they say, well, Weber's living in the Neolithic age when he designed the computers and whatnot. If I, I'm sorry, I was living in the Neolithic age when he designed <laughs> the computers, and the series has just gone on long enough that I can't really change it without introducing all kinds of, of uh, inconsistencies, continuity errors, uh, into the books. Now, there's capabilities, computer capabilities buried in the books, that a lot of people don't seem to realize is there. It's like the universe is lousy with AI, but it's non-self-aware AI. It's uh, it's brilliant software, not not true artificial intelligence. You can't run these starships without it, but it's kind of like it's part of my subsumed background. I don't tell you when somebody flips a light switch about the generating plant on the other side of the of the of the cable path. You know. Um, Although I understand, given my proclivity to do uh, info dumps, why people might assume that if I didn't tell you, it's not happening. But there's huge amounts of stuff going on that I just assume is going on in the background. It only comes into the foreground when it becomes important to the story that I'm telling. Well, your info dumps are usually, you better pay attention to this uh, because it's going to be on the test kind of info dumps. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, yeah, and, and I know, I understand people who who object to them, but my position has always been that the reader has to have the background information available to the person making the decisions in a military environment to understand whether the right decisions or the wrong decisions. Mm-hmm. And I have readers who explain to me at great length why it was the wrong decision in a given case because I gave them technology and they're saying, well, our understanding of the technology is it want to work this way. You know, I also get people who send me emails that say, you can't do it that way in the Royal Manticorn Navy because that's not the way the Royal British Navy did it. And I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> okay. Do you see any place where this is called the Royal British Navy? If you look at it, you know, surface-wise, it does have a lot of similarity to the to the Royal Navy. But if you get into the, the guts of how it works, uh, it actually has more in common with the U.S. Navy 
than with the, than with the British Navy. It's an it's a it's an alloy of the two. It's kind of like people thought for a long time that the People's Republic of Haven was France before the Revolution. And I will admit that I encouraged them to do that just as hard as I could because I didn't want them to see Thomas Theismann coming up as the eventual restorer of the Republic. I wanted them to be looking at Esther McQueen, who was kind of the Napoleon analog. So I was pushing them down that French model just as hard as I could without ever saying, yes, this is the French model. Name the planet Nouveau Paris. The conspirators meet on a tennis court to swear their oath against the crown. And Robert Stanton Pierre signs his document uh, by order of Robespierre, Chairman Committee of Public Safety. So I can't imagine why anyone would have thought that they were being the French. But that whole thing was deliberate on my part to keep you from looking too closely at Thomas Theismann who was going to restore the original republic eventually. He is a main character in uh, The Honor of the, the Queen people. as well, that we, and we get inside of his viewpoint yeah. several times, not knowing what he's going to become, which is uh, very important in the Honorverse. Oh, yes, he's hugely important in the Honorverse. People will argue, and I'm not sure they're wrong, that Thomas Theismann is actually potentially a better strategist and has accomplished more than Honor has because of where he started from and where he wound up. He's, uh, Tom, Tom Theismann has always been one of my favorite characters, and I knew when I stuck him into uh, Honor of the Queen what I intended to have him do later. I might have you know, said in concrete things could have changed, but that's, that's what I intended for him to do. And I was a little surprised how much in the course of working on the books and sort of weaving him back in every so often just to kind of keep him on the periphery of the reader's, you know, attention and watch him gradually growing to a point of seniority where he might be in a position to overthrow the the uh, Pierre regime. I was surprised how much I came to like him. <laughs> yeah, well, he's an immensely likable guy. He's, he's, it's, you can see yourself in him as a reader, you know, what if I got in this horrible if I had grown up in this horrible society and I wanted to somehow be true to my roots. I think that's something that happens with a lot of the characters in the Honorverse. People have asked me, you know, why do I think readers empathize with honor as strongly as they do? And I tell them that I think that the primary reason that they empathize with her is that she is a responsible human being. Um, there's a little bit of, of Heinlein hero in a way in her. She's capable, she's competent, and she takes responsibility, and she digs in to fix the problem. She doesn't say, well, it wasn't my fault this happened, or it's not my job to fix it. If there's a problem that she has the capacity to fix, it becomes her responsibility to fix it as far as she's concerned. And I think that resonates with almost every human being, that that's who they'd like to be, it's who they would like to have for their friends, for their leaders, uh, for the people in their lives. And I think that today, maybe even more than in the 1990s when I started writing the books, that there is such a uh, polarization in the political process. Uh, there's so much uh, cynicism about national leaders, not just in the United States, but elsewhere, that readers want to see someone who epitomizes what they want 
out of the people they trust mm -hmm. to run their world. Okay, I think that's a huge factor in honors in honors popularity. I have the fact that she's you know kick butt martial artist fighter, that she's a beautiful woman whether she thinks she is or not, uh, and that she has a really really cool best friend who rides around on her shoulder all the time. You know that doesn't hurt, <laughs> but I really think that at core of what makes people care about Honor Harrington is the fact that she clearly cares about others. Well, let's, uh, I hear your voice cracking, so let's call a, a, a halt to uh, to this conversation, which could go on for, for a long time, because there's a lot of people that are quite fascinated with this wonderful role you've created. Uh, let me just close it out. The book is the leather-bound signed limited edition of The Honor of the Queen. It's celebrating it is celebrating the 21st anniversary of the publication of this, the second entry in the internationally best-selling Honor Harrington science fiction series. It's now available from booksellers everywhere, even on the Internet, which didn't exist when it was, <laughs> when it was written. Hurry up and get yours, oh reader. It, is, uh, it really is signed, and it really is limited, and they're, they're going to go quickly. Let me throw something else out here while I'm thinking about it. Uh, the second edition, uh, the second issue of Tales of Honor, Evergreen Films' uh, comic book adaptation of the Honorverse, uh, came out May the 1st. Um, and it is, they're still in uh, Basilisk Station. My understanding is that it's going to take us 20 to 24 issues to get to the end of In Enemy Hands, but it's out there. And I encourage anybody who is interested to go and look for it. Well, we could we could get into the the fact that there is a film in in heavy development right now, um, and your co-authored book, Cauldron of Ghosts, with uh, Eric Flint, is on the New York Times bestseller list at the moment. Um, yeah, there's a lot of honor out there. Um, uh, Let's, let's not forget the first volume in the Manticore Ascendant series with Tim Zahn. That's right. Let me just say that uh, I am very, very, very satisfied with that book. Um, I've always loved Tim's writing. And Tim himself is a sweetheart. He's, oh, yeah. I'm, he's one of my favorite people. He's very easy to work with. Um, and he and Tom Pope uh, did me proud uh, on that one. I'm very happy with it. That one is called um, a uh, a call to duty, and it's the first volume of the uh, Manticore Ascendant series. And the second one, I believe, is going to be uh, a call to arms. Um, that's when things get messy. Uh -huh. <laughs> they have a tendency to do that in the universe. I, I remember in Heinlein's Number of the Beast when they realized that they were in the Gray Lensman's universe and immediately decided to leave because <laughs> people died. <laughs> Yeah. Let's get out of here. Oh, now I now I have to go make potato salad. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us today, David. Oh, thank you for thank you for letting me go on and on. Oh, I'll get a lot of, a lot of podcasts out of this. So thanks. And now here is part fourteen of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days.
Okay, here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. Jake is good at doing this. Now Jake has taken on a mob hitman and an assassin from the Asian Imperium and practically destroyed a hotel in the process. Jake has been terribly wounded, but a group of mysterious men have carted him away, telling him to relax. They are the good guys. As Jake struggles back to consciousness, he is about to find out whether or not they were telling the truth. Here is Bronson Pinchot with Part 14 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Unknown Location Sullivan's head hurt, and the inside of his mouth was dry and tasted like he'd been chewing on rotten, mouse-flavored cotton balls. The first thing he saw as he came to was a cup of water sitting by the side of the bed. Forcing himself up with a groan, he reached for it, but the fresh stitches in his arm and chest pulled and burned. His head swam, so he had to give up and lay back down. The water just sat there, taunting him. At first Sullivan thought that he was really dizzy because the tiny room seemed to be swaying, but then he saw the vibrating ripples in the water cup and realized that it was the room that was moving and not him. There was a rhythmic noise coming from under the floor, and after a moment his fogged brain put together that it was steel wheels on a train track. The thick curtains had been drawn, but enough light leaked around the corners to indicate it was afternoon. He was on a train, in a private luxury car, apparently. He vaguely remembered stumbling up a ramp under his own power, being led by the German on one arm and the fellow with glasses on the other, and at some point he had wound up in a wheelchair. The trip from the Rasmussen was a blur, and Sullivan knew that he'd lost a lot of blood on the way. That swordsman had stabbed him good. It was only through luck and the timely intervention of the two strangers that he hadn't got his head chopped off. Sullivan frowned at the water, contemplating his next move. There was something fishy about the swordsman. The goons he'd popped had been Lenny Torrio's boys, but the Japanese was way out of Lenny's league. He'd never met someone with a power like that or with the ability to adapt so quickly. Sullivan had been challenged by all sorts in Rockville, and he'd always won because he was meaner, tougher, and faster than the other guy. This one had been different. But he'd still managed to squish him like a bug nonetheless. He hadn't used his power like that since he had last lost his temper, that time it got him sent to prison, but strangely enough he felt equally justified in both uses. It hurt to move his head, but he tried to rise a bit. There was a wheelchair shoved in one corner, blocked in by a regular wooden chair so it wouldn't be able to roll about. Several bloody towels were piled on it. Beside the water cup was a leather surgeon's bag, still open, and a few implements were sitting on a white cloth. He couldn't remember a thing, but apparently he'd had one hell of a night. One wood-paneled wall slid open, revealing itself as a door. The man that entered was in his forties, short and chubby, 
Good afternoon, Mr. Sullivan. Glad to see you're awake, he said, walking over to the bedside, humming absently. He spared no time manhandling Sullivan's arm so he could inspect the stitches. Sullivan cringed in pain, but the man didn't seem to notice. Hmm, not my best work, but you're not dead, so I'll call it a win. Sullivan nodded his head at the water. What? Oh, yes. The side effects of opiate-based pain relievers can include cotton mouth, which can be rather unpleasant, the man stated matter-of-factly. It took him a second to realize that Sullivan didn't want a medical lesson. He just wanted a drink. Oh, yes, sorry. Here you go. He managed to spill half of it, but Sullivan cherished the victory over his enemy, the cup. Who are you? He finally croaked. Where am I? Dr. Ira Rosenstein, I was harassed by Mr. Garrett into coming on this trek. Mr. Koenig is in the next room getting some sleep. They had a late flight. I believe Mr. Garrett is in the dining car. I tried to tell him that I would prefer for you not to move for several days, but he was adamant that you must return to California immediately. The general must be briefed on the presence of an iron guard. Can you imagine? An actual iron guard acting with impunity within the United States? But of course you can, obviously. You did kill him, after all, and in a particularly spectacular manner, if Heinrich is to be believed, though he does tend to embellish. Sullivan just nodded, as if he had any clue what the doctor was talking about. You will need to take it easy for a while. Your physical condition indicates to me a rather intense lifestyle. In addition to what I attempted to fix last night without my regular staff or equipment, in a moving train car rather than a proper operating room, but I digress. As I was saying, you are suffering from several other very recent punctures, contusions, and lacerations. I would strongly suggest that you tone down your activities, Mr. Sullivan. You a healer? Rosenstein snorted, as if. No, I am a doctor. I work for a living. Yes, I do happen to be a cog, so I am a particularly gifted surgeon when the opportunity arises, the finest in Chicago. But I went to medical school and have continually educated myself at every opportunity to further my knowledge of anatomy and the most cutting-edge surgical techniques, if you will excuse the pun. He smiled. Sullivan didn't get it, but he'd had a really hard week. Sure. The doctor continued, Most people do not realize that cogs are not just limited to machines or theoretical equations capped with bursts of magical brilliance. Some of us prefer to toil in fields of a medical nature, whereas healers... He waved his hand dismissively. Know absolutely nothing of anatomy or biology but work their magic from base intuition, and oh, how everybody just loves healers. They just put their hands on you and poof, you are all better, and then everyone showers them in money. Do you know how many years I went to school, Mr. Sullivan? Oh, uh, a lot. He could tell it was a sore spot. Yes, a lot. Rosenstein raised his voice. Have you ever met an active healer that wasn't an insufferable bore, full of themselves with a god complex and an ego bigger than Lake Superior? Sullivan had never actually had a conversation with a healer. They were, after all, the rarest of the rare of actives. 
or so he had thought until he met a Jap who could shrug off dozens of rounds of thirty oh six. He shrugged. Well, trust me, sir, they're all pompous, a lot of them. The only thing they're good for is publicity. Sullivan nodded. The miraculous ability of the healer and the wondrous ingenuity of the cog were the single biggest reasons actives had been so accepted, even celebrated in American society. Some types of powers did not fare so well. Heavies were generally valuable as dumb lugs, useful in industry, so he was in the middle of the pack. Other types were actually discriminated against, even despised. Rosenstein checked the chest wound next, clucking approvingly at his work. I am rather surprised that you survived this wound. It struck bone, but managed not to shear through. It is almost as if your bones are extremely dense. Hmm. You should be dead. Sullivan didn't say anything, but he knew that it was probably because of all of his experimentation at Rockville. When breaking rocks had become too easy, he'd broken rocks in increased gravity. Sullivan had made his body as hard as his attitude. Even when he wasn't altering his weight through magic, he tipped the scales at eighty pounds heavier than he looked. Toward the end, when he was using all his power, he'd broken rocks with his bones. Good thing Garrett thought to call me. Helping out is the least I can do. He held up his right hand and used his thumb to wiggle a black and gold ring. Considering I owe the society my life. Then he went back to work. Who's the society? The doctor paused, fingers on the bandage. Excuse me? The society, what is it? The grim noir, of course. A look crossed Rosenstein's face, partway between confusion and embarrassment. I thought you were... He grew even more troubled. Oh, my. Excuse me for a moment. And the chubby man leapt up and hurried from the room like he had just discovered his patient was inflicted with a highly contagious plague. Sullivan sighed and watched the ceiling. He was a patient man. Three minutes later, the German entered the room, rubbing sleep from his eyes. Rosenstein stayed in the doorway, fidgeting nervously. The German pulled up the chair, knocked the bloody towels on the floor, and sat on it backwards, arms resting on the back, studying Sullivan. I will handle this, doctor, he said finally. The doctor gladly fled, closing the door behind him. The new visitor was young, with extremely short hair and a neatly trimmed goatee, the guy he punched out on the blimp. He waited a minute before grinning. I uh, is worried he said too much about us. Very good surgeon, but he's always frightening about something. The smile seemed genuine, but Sullivan knew better than to trust anyone. Who are you? Heinrich Koenig, at your service, he said. Fade extraordinaire and all-around problem solver. Sullivan nodded. The German was probably in his early twenties, so at least a decade younger than Sullivan, but behind that easy smile was something dangerous. Sullivan could recognize a fellow traveler of the hard life, a survivor. Underneath the friendly veneer lurked the soul of a killer. Thanks for stepping in there. We did the world a favor by ending that man, perhaps more than you will ever know, Heinrich replied. No thanks necessary. That is what we do. We? I cannot say that yet. What are the grimoire? 
that isn't my place to explain. My associate will be back soon, and he is supposed to give you the pitch. Believe it or not, the reason we were at your hotel room was to make you a job offer. Then you're the one that's good with words. Me, I am more a man of action. I got a couple of G-men who'd agree with that. Heinrich shrugged modestly. I have my talents. So did Sullivan. How's the jaw? The smile left. You broke it in two places. Luckily, we have a mentor on staff. She put it back together. Fixed Francis's knee, too. Having a healer around is nice. The blonde on the blimp? Yes. Heinrich reached up and rubbed his jaw. A very good one. It still hurts, though. Yep. Imagine it would, Sullivan grunted. He wasn't the apologizing type, and he was still waiting on some answers. So are you going to tell me what the straight deal is, or are you just here to waste my time? The German chuckled coldly. The straight deal is beyond your comprehension. You have no idea what you have just walked into. We are in a war, the likes of which even you have not seen. Don't get lippy. Sullivan replied. I managed to stack a few of your relatives back in the biggest war ever, so don't tell me what I haven't seen, kid. The German frowned. He was too young to have fought in the Great War, but Sullivan knew the country had fallen apart after the armistice. There were some tough feelings there, he could tell, but Heinrich kept his cool. I just ask that you be patient and your questions will be answered. I'm about done with this nonsense, Sullivan gasped as he tried to sit up, all of the stitches pulling in his chest and arm like strands of fire. I'm walking out that door and don't you try to stop me. Heinrich uncurled his arms from the chair back, paused as if in thought, then reached into his gray suit coat and pulled a revolver from the inside pocket. Sullivan tensed, ready to spike, but Heinrich just smiled again as he flipped the revolver around and handed it over butt first. I believe you left this at the hotel. Your big gun was unfortunately smashed to bits. Sullivan warily took his Smith and Wesson. He swung out the cylinder. It was still loaded. You wish to go? Your clothes, or should I say the bloody remains of your pants and your shoes are under the bed? Unfortunately, neither I nor my associates have anything that will fit you, my large friend. Feel free to leave at any time. I believe we are in Kansas by now. You should have no problem wandering around the Midwest, especially missing half your blood. Oh, and the police are looking for you. Apparently, Herr Hoover is a little upset about you destroying a downtown hotel in a rather newsworthy manner and wants you brought in. I'm sure he will understand why the mob and an Imperium assassin were trying to murder you. He would also want to know why exactly Sullivan had gone to meet with Torrio. Hoover would more than likely send him back to Rockville just for being a pain in the ass. The German continued. Or you could continue to rest until my associate returns and then everything will be explained in full. It hurt to move. It hurt to think. Just rising this far had made him dizzy. Sullivan glowered and slowly lowered himself to the bed. He kept the thirty-eight in one big hand. Heinrich stood. Very good. Daniel should be back in a moment. He turned to leave. Answer me one thing. 
Sullivan said just as Heinrich reached the door. You say we're in a war. What side are you? Heinrich paused. This war is in the shadows beyond nations. I am on the side of righteousness, of all that is free, or holy, or good. Herr Sullivan, rest. You look like death. He closed the door. Of course the Grim Noir thought they were the good guys. Everybody thought they were in the right. The evilest bastards he had ever met had still thought of themselves as the good guys. It was just his dumb luck to blunder into a bunch of true believers. Sullivan closed his eyes and went back to sleep. That was part 14 of the complete audiobook serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Kim Montserrat, Edith Hoffman, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a rousing 4th of July, impeller wedge-defying, sidewall-shattering, firework extravaganza for David Weber, author of The Honor of the Queen, now available in a new signed leather-bound edition. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.